Our study today is entitled King David. Uh, last week we studied about young David. And for the past month or so, we've been studying from the book of Samuel. It took us quite a while to get through 1 Samuel. But today we're going to attempt to get through all of 2 Samuel in one sitting. Okay? The story of 2 Samuel is just a continuation. Uh, the, the whole book of Samuel was one book originally. But the, I guess the stories and the details were too much. They had to stop it somewhere. So they stopped in the middle um, when King Saul had died. And here we're going to be picking up from that time where King Saul died. 2 Samuel begins here with the making of a new king. And we see David's lament for Saul and Jonathan. So in this first chapter, we're doing more of an overview sort of study today. But we're connecting more with the character of King David. He's not king yet. But David, he was a fierce warrior, okay? He was leading the armies, okay? And there was much victory and much blessing and favor that came upon David as he was leading the Israelite armies, okay? David hears about Saul's death after he had just finished clearing out the Amalekites, okay? And David, he's sitting there, and he's waiting for word, and all of a sudden, a young man comes up to him. And a young man is bearing the shield and sword of, and the crown of King Saul. And um, he, he informs David, my Lord, I come to you. I regret to inform you, but King Saul has died. And he goes, how do you know this? And the young man tells a story. He says, well, the chariots were coming and they were, they were coming in full force. And I looked up on the hill and I saw King Saul hunched over his sword. And he called me over, and he was still alive, so he, he asked me to come over and, and finish the job. So I went up, and I, I killed him to put him out of his misery so he would not be given into the hands of the enemies. And David asked, who are you, sir? He goes, I am a son of an Amalekite. Now, who did David just finish defeating? The Amalekites. And here comes one of the enemy coming over saying, oh, I, I did a good thing for your king. I put him out of his misery. And David looked at the young man and goes, did you not stop to think? You killed the chosen, the anointed king. How, how could you do this evil, wicked thing? Now, at the end of 1 Samuel, we read about the account of how it actually happened, where Saul asked his armor bearer to finish him up, but the armor bearer would not kill Saul because he was chosen by the Lord. So King Saul killed himself on his own sword. But according to this young guy, why do you think he would come up and, and say that he helped Saul? Trying to gain favor, trying to secure his uh, safety. You just killed my people, but I did a good thing. You know, he comes up and makes up the story. You know what David says? How dare you? kill an anointed one from the Lord. How dare you? His life was precious. His life was sacred. So you know what he does? He orders the man because of his own confession and admission of what he had done. Because you have done this wicked thing, you are to be put to death. And he kills the Amalekite. He has him killed. Shortly after that, David finally, he, he's dealt with this little mess and he starts to have this lament. Right? He starts to think back and he, he regrets for Saul's life. 
and, and he feels this deep sorrow for the son of Saul, Jonathan, his, his best friend. And he, we know that David, he wrote many of the Psalms, right? He was a musician. And so much of scripture in the Old Testament, we see a lot of his poems, his poetry come out. And it's such a beautiful thing when he does this. The song begins and ends with Jonathan. He talks about Israel and how beautiful it is. And at the end of it, he's talking about Jonathan again. If you turn to your Bibles, you could find that, that song in the first chapter there of 2 Samuel. David, David chanted this lament and this beautiful song of his that he sang about the mighty warriors that have fallen. All right, he was paying honor and tribute to the king that went before him. And we remember that King Saul had tried to kill David time and time again. He was hunting down David so that he wouldn't be a threat to the throne. But David still honored King Saul, recognizing that he was chosen and anointed by the Lord. That if anyone were to take King Saul from that position, it would be the Lord himself. Let no man break apart what the Lord has put in place. Yes? It's the Lord that gives, and it's the Lord that takes away. So when we bless the Lord, it means we don't meddle with his plan. We don't try and get our own favor like that young Amalekite man did. All right? When the Lord sets something as sacred and holy, let it be sacred and holy before the Lord. There's one passage here. There's one passage here in verse 26. And if you look with me, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman. Now, a lot of people talk about this and say, wow, Jonathan and David must have had some sort of uh, homosexual relationship. But it just goes to show that this pure love between David and Jonathan was one of the most honored stories of friendship throughout the Bible. And if it were indeed a sexual relationship, the Lord would not allow that to be elevated for all to see. The, the reason being, David had many women, okay? He had many women. There was no faithfulness between between the women and David, and he could have had anybody. He was a handsome guy. He was, you know, fighting off uh, all these in the war, and who wouldn't want the big strong guy that leads the army? But Jonathan was so loyal and so faithful, and their love was so noble and selfless. Neither one of them had felt that sort of connection with a woman. That's all that that's saying there. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The weapons of war, he, he's talking about Saul and Jonathan here. Now David took this song, he chanted it. He wanted all of Israel to learn this song, to honor King Saul and David, uh, and Jonathan, I'm sorry, to honor King Saul and Jonathan. It became a national war song. Okay. We go into 2 Samuel chapters 2 to 6. After the lamenting's done and the, the poem's been sung and taught for generations, we see that David, he goes through this whole, he experiences a season of blessing, a season of success. 
Okay, and God is blessing him, and they go out to war, and all the enemies are given into his hand. He goes and conquers lands, and everything's working out, you know. And it came to a point where the rest of Israel were able to acknowledge, we have no king anymore, but David, you should be our leader. They, they called for him, you be our king. Would you please unite all the nations of Israel? Unite us all as one, so all of Israel and Judah come together as one under the mighty leadership of King David. We see unity. Under King Saul, it was still divided kingdoms, divided tribes. There was still some sort of bickering and infighting. Who's better, you know? But with David, they called, please bring us all together. Let us be united as one great force, okay? And David does just this. He unites the nations of Israel, and he becomes their king. He goes over to the land of Jerusalem, and he conquers Jerusalem and renames it Zion. While they're there, he's like, wow, this is our land. This is where we belong. So all of Israel, we're here together, and this is going to be our capital city. But he didn't want it to just be a political power, a political place that they say this is our, our physical home. He wanted to make it a religious capital as well. So he called for the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the presence of God, the mercy seat? He called for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought into Jerusalem, and there the presence of God would reside. Okay. And all this is happening. Everything's working in his favor. Jerusalem is set up high. They have a place to call home after so many years. This brings us to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, David has this desire to build God a temple. He wants to give him a, a house, a permanent house. Because up to this point, we know that the Ark of the Covenant was being moved in, in tents. The holy tent would move and change location, but the presence of God was always with his people there. And he said, wait, but we now, Israel now, has a permanent home. I want to give God a permanent home as well. So through the prophet Nathan, he, he says, this is what I want to do for God. And Nathan says, go ahead, you go do that. But God comes to Nathan and tells him, go back and talk to David. Have I ever needed a permanent house before? Like, like God's presence really needs some security made by man's hands? God says, no thanks. I don't need your house. It was a nice thought but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. Okay? And this is going to go on for generations and generations. I'm building up your house, David. Now, in chapter 7, if you have your Bibles open, please do turn with me. I don't have it up on the screen. But you notice around chapter 7, verse 8, this is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. One of the most important passages in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting at verse 8. Why is this so important? God makes a promise. God makes a promise to David, a covenant. He promises that a future king will rise from his royal line. This future king will build God's temple on earth. 
the future king will set up an eternal kingdom. What a promise. And David's sitting there, and he's like, well, I, I'm just a new king right now. Uh, it's amazing. What a, what a great promise that God has made with me. From my royal line will rise up a king of an eternal kingdom. So God says, listen, I don't need your temple built for me right now because in the future, through your line, this will be done. The new king will build God's temple on earth. So this future king gets connected with God's promise to Abraham. Do you remember Abraham, that promise, with the covenant God made with Abraham? You'll be the father of all nations. Okay. The future messianic kingdom will be how God brings blessings to whom? To all the nations. Who is this future king? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born and raised and he came from the house of David, from the line of David. Jesus is the one that would set up that temple. He, he's the one that would set up the eternal kingdom. God's promise is found right here in 2 Samuel. A very direct promise talking about the Messiah. So after all this blessing, he's winning wars, everything's working out great, he's conquered, he's given Israel a land to call their own, he has the Ark of the Covenant there, and, and God has just given him the best promise in the world ever, that there would be this future king, and he's giving him hope. And in the height of all this blessing and success comes David's worst mistake ever. His worst mistake ever. Starting in chapter 11. Have you heard of Bathsheba? So King David's sitting there, you know, he's, got, he's done his job. He's hired some commanders to go out and lead his armies. I think it's his cousin Joab that was leading one of the armies. And um, so he's out there. And while everybody else is out fighting, conquering lands, because you know it's easy peasy for them by this point. They're the superpower when it comes to war. He's sitting up there on his palace court. And he looks out over his city below him. And on one of the rooftops, something catches his eye. A little flesh. A little flesh. He sees somebody that didn't have on all the appropriate clothing. Why is that woman naked on her rooftop? Oh, she's taking a bath. Let me just sit here and enjoy this view. And he watches and goes, wow, that woman is so beautiful. Wow, look at her bathing all. Whew. Bring her to me. Find out who she is. Bring her to me. So he sends for her. And make a long story short, David sends for her. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And then he tries to cover it up by assassinating Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Assassinating Uriah on the battlefield. And after that happens, David ends up marrying Bathsheba. Now it's said that Bathsheba was one that David loved so dearly. And she was indeed very precious and beautiful. And when she became pregnant, 
this is where it gets a little bit, a little bit rough. Any of you like the telenovelas? The soap operas? No, you don't like those? The, maybe it's evening drama? It's just masked. It's put out a different time. Um, there's so much drama in the Bible. Let, let's look at what happens. Nathan goes and he tells David a story, the prophet Nathan. After all this stuff has happened, Uriah's assassinated. They're happily married, right? David and Bathsheba, and she's pregnant with her child. Nathan comes up and the Lord tells Nathan, go to David and tell him the story that there's a man in the city. There's a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has all these sheep, but the poor man just has a little one. Okay? And someone comes through, and there's a visitor that comes through, and it, it, it's hospitality in their culture. You should take the best of your sheep and bring it and offer it as something to offer your guests. So the rich man, he's looking around, and he goes, oh, there's a sheep right there. He takes the poor man's sheep, slaughters it, and offers it as, a, as the offering to his guest. David said, that's despicable. Who, who would dare do such a thing? Who is this rich man? He must be put to death. This, is, this will not stand. He has to pay for the wrong that he has done, taking advantage of the, uh, the poor man like that. Nathan looks at him and says, King David, you are that man. What? He just sentenced himself to death. He knew that what he had done is wrong, and right away he repented. He was stricken with that guilt. And right away he goes back to the Lord and he's pouring out and he's like, I am so sorry for what I've done. This can't be right. And then he adds on a little something else. The child that Bathsheba, your wife, is carrying, that child will not live. So after she had given birth to their, this child, the Lord struck the child with an illness. Seven days later, the child died. King David, he's, you know, during that time when he's waiting, his child's sick and he, he's, put, he's grieving and he's going to God and he's begging God, if there's anything you could do, please just let my son. He fasted and, and he was just before God trying to plead with him. And on the seventh day after he died, David got up, he washed himself, he anointed himself, he put on his clothes, he went to the temple and he prayed to God, he worshiped God there. And then he went home, and he started to eat. And his servants are wondering, your son just died. Why is it you want to eat? And David says, well, I was fasting, hoping that maybe God would hear my plea. But now that my son is dead, there's no reason for me to fast anymore. So let me eat, regain my strength. And, and he goes on that way. Now that David and Bathsheba are married, their child was just dead. David goes to comfort his wife, you know. You know, the only words that Bathsheba has ever spoken in the Bible, all she said is, I am pregnant. That is it. And that's enough, you know. Like, when a guy hears those words, let me tell you, I am pregnant, your world just kind of starts to flip. And your mind starts to, my wife came up to me a few months ago. I am pregnant. I'm like, Again? Come on, you know? But as a guy, you start to make those plans and you have hopes and dreams and, you know, all that stuff for a future. 
So here, when that son was put to death, there's no more future through that life. But God had another plan for David and Bathsheba. Now that they're married, and she is his wife, he goes and comforts her, he lays with her, goes into her, and she becomes pregnant again. She gives birth to a child, and do you know that child's name? Solomon. Who is Solomon in the Bible? He's the wisest king, the next king that would rise up after David. God had a plan, even through their wicked deed, even through their sin, God still made sure that David would know the favor of the Lord was still with him, even after he's done wrong. Got a question for you guys. Have you ever felt like, I've done something wrong, the favor of God isn't on me anymore, and you start to freak out, and you start to think, how is God going to forgive me for this? You know, could God still use me? Does he still love me? And you start to ask all these questions. I've disappointed the Lord, you know, I'm such a bad person, and you start to say these things to yourself. And you think, I'm not worthy, how could God possibly do anything through my life? My friends, God has used imperfect people. He has used some of the wickedest people through history, but his story, his purposes still come through despite our wicked and evil deeds. We don't need to get all hard on ourselves. What did David do? He knew what he had done was wrong. There was a consequence to his action. His son died, and he still goes back and worships the Lord. When things go wrong, do you still go back and worship the Lord? Or do you only go to God when you need something? God, please, I need this, I need this, I got it. Yes, thank you, God, and then you forget about him. Sometimes you pray, I need this, I need this, God, and it doesn't seem like God's giving you what you want. So you're like, okay, I've given you a a chance, God, but uh, I'm going to try doing this on my own because you're not helping me. All right? And this is very common in in our spiritual journey. But David, we remember, he is called a man after God's own heart. That even when he does wrong or or slips up and makes the biggest mistake ever, he still goes back and turns to God and seeks what God wants. I'm sorry for what I've done, Lord, show me the right way. I'm sorry for what I've done, Lord, you've saved me and your grace is amazing. Your mercy is new every morning. And all these things are coming off David's lips. But that is just the beginning. That is just the beginning of King David's downfall. Remember, we've studied about King Saul. A few mistakes here and there. And then you see the downfall of Saul. You see the downfall of his family. Here's King David at the height, at the peak of everything. He's on that mountaintop place. All the success, all the blessing, all the accomplishments, all anybody would ever want, he had. And then he makes one mistake. God forgives David. But David still has to live with the consequences of his decision. This is important. Sometimes we pray to God and we ask for forgiveness. Friends, guess what? God forgives you when you confess. When God forgives you because that's what he does. But you still need to deal with the consequences of the decisions that you make. Sometimes we think mercy means I don't have to deal with anything. I've confessed. God's forgiven me. Let me wash my hands of this. And you don't deal with anything. 
you just shove it under the rug. And you go through life making the same mistakes over and over again. And you wonder, why do I keep confessing the same sin over and over again? I thought this was dealt with. I thought this was done. No. God loves you. He forgives you. But one of the ways that he teaches us our lessons is by allowing us to go through the consequences of the very things we have chosen. Okay? That's a big takeaway today. If there's one thing you're going to go home with today, let it be that. It helps us understand more about we don't want to take God's forgiveness in vain. We don't want to take his grace in vain. We don't just want to use it to make ourselves feel better. We have to understand this is how God works. He loves you. He forgives you. And he wants what's best for you. So he's going to teach you the lessons you need. Okay? Remember, David, he was on the run before. Right? And he still had to learn his lessons. And with this biggest mistake, God taught him such a big, difficult lesson. But indeed, David was learning from it. As we read on from chapters 13 to 14, <laughs> this is real drama, guys. So his children, he's got a bunch of kids now, right? Different mommies. And uh, he's got a son named Amnon. And there's this other couple kids, Absalom and Tamar. And um, Amnon, he's looking at Tamar, and he loves her. It's his sister, but he loves her. She's so beautiful. He watches her in the court all the time. Oh, there's, there's Tamar walking. Ah. There's something when a guy looks at a woman, and she's just walking, and he goes, ah. And he is so, like, burning inside because he just wants to be with his sister. He tells his friend, what do I do, man? I want, I want Tamar. So he devises this wicked scheme, this plan to get Tamar alone. His friend says, why don't you just pretend to be sick, right? Just pretend to be sick. Lie down on your bed and tell your dad that you're not feeling well. Tell King David you're not feeling well. And then ask for Tamar to be sent to prepare you some food, okay? And she'll come over and prepare the food, and that's exactly what happens. He goes, he pretends he's sick. King David says, okay, Tamar, come, please, prepare some food for Amnon here so he could be restored. When Tamar comes over, she prepares the food. Amnon, he's doing a really good job acting sick, okay? He's lying on the bed. And he asks, are all the other people still here? Tell them all to, to leave. I need my rest. Tell them to leave. And she goes, yes, everybody's clearing out. Then he goes, why don't you prepare? Bring this food that you prepared. Bring it into my bedroom so that I could lie down, okay? Tamar does, just as Amnon says. And he wanted to eat from her hand so she would nurse him back to health. But as she came to him with the food, he takes hold of her and does a very wicked thing. He takes advantage of Tamar. Tamar's a virgin. She was wearing the, the clothing of a virgin with the long sleeves. But he went into his sister, defiled her, abused her, and she felt worthless. But what was worse was when he was done with her, you know what it said? He hated her. He despised her with a greater hate than the love that he had for her in the first place. And he wanted her to get out of there. 
And she goes, no, that is an even more wicked thing. It's one thing for you to rape me, but to dismiss me after that, no, you are responsible for me now. And he goes, I want to have nothing to do with you. Get out of my sight. And she pleaded and she begged, but he had to call his servants and said, get her out of here. I don't want her in my house anymore. As she left, she put ashes on her head. She tore the sleeves from her arms. She was grieving and mourning. She felt worthless, as good as dead. She goes, and Absalom, her brother, sees her and says, what has happened here? Tamar tells Absalom, and Absalom, he says, wow, that Amnon, he's going to pay. A couple years later, there's this plan that Absalom has. And he goes out there, and he goes into the house with Amnon. Amnon's drinking. He's having a great time. And then he tells the servants, when he is happy and drunk, you kill him. So the servants go, and they kill Amnon. He's assassinated by his own brother, Absalom. And when this happened, all the other brothers, all the other children of King David, they fled. The news came back to King David. O king, your sons are all gone. There's nobody left, only Absalom. This is where it gets really messed up. Absalom then starts to build a rebellion. He starts to turn the nation of Israel against King David. He starts putting people in places of position and power. He knows how to manipulate people. I'll give you a little bit of this if you do what I say. You're going to have favor in my court when I become king. Right? And he thinks he's the one that's going to that's going to rise to power. He launches a full-scale rebellion, and for a second time, David is forced to leave his own home and hide in the wilderness. Remember when King Saul wanted to hunt down David? He left the courts. He was out in the wilderness. He was on the run. And here we see a king on the run from his own home in the wilderness. But this time, He's a guilty man. Have you ever been left alone with your own guilt? And you think on it, and it weighs down on you. Remember, when he ran off in the wilderness before, he didn't think, oh no, God has forsaken me, because he knew the favor of the Lord was still on him. He recognized all the mercies of God during that time that sustained him while he was in the wilderness. But this time, imagine what might have been going through his head. I made a big mistake. Life is not going the way I'm expecting. My children are gone. What is going on here? Has the Lord abandoned me? Maybe he thought that. Long story short, starting in chapter 19, this big rebellion ends when Absalom is murdered. Do you remember how Absalom dies? He had, apparently, Absalom had beautiful, long hair. And he'd cut his hair once a year, and it was thick and luscious and beautiful. So while he's riding his mule, he rides under a tree, and his hair gets stuck in the thicket of the tree. And while he's hanging there, some of King David's servants, they see him hanging there. Joab, specifically, the leader of the army, sees Absalom hanging in the tree. He's still alive. Okay? But Absalom has 
ordered everybody to hunt down David and do away with him. So Joab does what he thinks is best. He goes up there and he murders Absalom while he's still alive, hanging helplessly in the tree. And then all his servants come around and they too make sure that the job is done and they all plunge their swords into him and Absalom is dead. The news comes back to David. The rebellion is over. Absalom is dead. You would think that David would be relieved. You would think that he would be happy. But once again, we see David, his heart, his compassion. He grieves his son. He laments over the loss of his son, the very man that tried to kill him. You know when the Bible says, love your enemies? This is what David was doing. When people were against him and they were out to get him, he had compassion. He had love for them. Indeed, he was a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't you like to be more like David, friends? To be a man after God's own heart, to be a person? Long story short, David, he is put back on the throne. He is a king again over all of Israel, but he is a broken man. His heart is hurting. And he spends his last days just reflecting on his life. The young shepherd boy that was anointed by Samuel, the young shepherd boy in his father's house while he was tending the sheep, all this unexpected favor that came upon him when he was anointed and the spirit of the Lord had been on him all this time, protecting him, caring for him, providing for him, giving him success where needed, teaching him, disciplining him. All the work of the Lord, David just kept reflecting on what the Lord was doing in his life. He was wounded by the sad consequences of his sin. In the last four chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, it's not a story done in chronological order here. It's just a, a few bits of information that we see. By divine revelation, David learned that the three-year famine that they were stuck with, that they were dealing with, it was a result of the sin committed by Saul. Saul had killed the Gibeonites. Now, 400 years prior to that, he didn't realize that he had broken a covenant that was made between Joshua and the Gibeonites. When Joshua came to the land, the Gibeonites, they were still living there. And he said, we won't harm your people, but this is now our land. So there was a covenant made, but that was broken when Saul killed the Gibeonites and when Israel took possession of it. David wanted to make things right, okay, paying for the sins of what had been done before. And the Gibeonites said, listen, we don't need your money. We don't want your gold or silver. What we want is we want to avenge what, we want to avenge our people for what Saul had done. So give us seven of Saul's sons. This could be sons, grandsons, anybody from Saul's line. Give us seven of Saul's family to be hanged at the place where Saul died, right? Now, was it actually seven sons 
We don't know. But seven is a number of completion. So the symbolism, the significance of give us seven sons, this will be complete, the covenant will be dealt with, that broken covenant, this is how they were avenged, the Gibeonites. David gave the seven sons of Saul, but he spared Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, because of the oath of the Lord made between David and Jonathan. Remember, the last time that they saw each other, David vowed that when he becomes king, he will take care of Jonathan's family, his line. So to honor that request, I mean, Jonathan's dead. Saul is dead. But he's still honoring the covenant and the promises that he made. This is integrity, friends. Sometimes we think when something is done and gone away with, we don't have to be responsible or accountable to the things we say we're going to do. God doesn't operate that way. Why should we? We must be responsible and be honorable, living a life of honor. That oath was made to the Lord between David and Jonathan. If David had broken that, then he would be committing a sin again against the Lord, you see. Saul's concubine, Rizpah, after the family had been hung and they're dead, she protected the dead bodies from the birds and the beasts. David heard about this and went down to collect Saul and Jonathan's bones and all the bones of all the family that were slaughtered. And he buried them in the grave of Saul's father, Kish. What a way to honor. You know, he went the extra mile. He didn't just take Mephibosheth and take care of Jonathan's family. He honored the memory of the chosen anointed king that God had placed, collecting their bones and letting them rest in a place, bringing honor back to that family so they could be remembered. Once all this was done, the three-year famine ended and God restored the land to prosperity. And we're going to jump now to the last chapter in 24. We see that David's heart is troubled. They took a census. They wanted to know how many Israelites are left. The numbers were dwindling. The numbers were starting to get low. And David's heart was troubled because of that. He asks God to take away his iniquity because he acted foolishly. He said, don't bring this famine upon my people anymore. Don't let them suffer because of the wrong that I had done. But this leadership that he's, you know, he says, deal with me. Deal with my family. Let us take the brunt of it. Don't let everybody suffer because of what I've done. God gives him three options. He says, okay, you could choose, David. You could choose seven years of famine in the land. You could Flee for three months while your foes pursue you. And when they say foes, they mean they're definitely coming at you with sword and spear and you will die for three months or three days of pestilence. Now, I'm not a great mathematician, okay? But if you were given the three options, what would you choose? Three days, days, less suffering, you think, right? I mean, like, some people think, I'm really good at hiding. I survived all that time before. Let me just run and let my foes chase after me for three months. Not too bad. Seven years of famine, I'm definitely not going with that one. 
I like to eat, thank you very much, <laughs> you know. But David, just like King Saul, he didn't want to be given into the hands of his enemies. He did not want to die at the hand of man. So he said a very brave thing here. I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. David knew that the Lord would be more merciful than his enemies, so he took the third option, pestilence. But in those three days, 70,000 men of the people of Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 men in three days when pestilence struck the land. David pleaded with the Lord, because it is I who have sinned and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David was instructed by the seer Gad to build an altar. Build an altar to the Lord where? On the threshing floor. Remember, we talked about the threshing floor. This is a place of judgment, okay? This is symbolic of a place of judgment. So build an altar on this place of judgment, okay? Where the plague stopped. This indicated where the Lord's choice was for building of his temple. Later on, that altar was very significant. The Lord would allow Solomon, David's son, to build his temple on that place. David built an altar to the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings. The Lord was moved by the prayer for the land, and the plague was held back. That's the very end of the book of Samuel. The Lord was moved by the prayer for the land, and the plague was held back. This is very important. It indicates that judgment is not the final action of the Lord toward either Israel or the house of David. God will fulfill the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants that he has made because God always keeps his word. He always keeps his promises. And judgment is not the final thing that anybody will see. Okay? There's something more. The book of Samuel is actually a book of hope it's a hope that points to the future king, okay? And we see in chapters 22 and 23 two of David's most beautiful poems ever written. You would think that you would look to the Psalms for these poems, but David's story is sprinkled throughout the Old Testament in many different places, especially in the book of Chronicles as well. But here, these two poems are probably the most beautiful and poetic Let's go back. In these poems, David, in his reflection, he remembers God's grace, how God was gracious and merciful to him while he was out in the wilderness, how when he did wrong, God forgave him and lovingly upheld him. Okay, so he remembers God's grace. He also remembers God's covenant promises. Okay. And he writes about this hope for a future king that would rise up from his line. Now, at the very beginning of the book of Samuel, this poem of his goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and reflects Hannah's song. Remember, Hannah was barren, 
She had no child. She asked God for a child, and God granted her Samuel. And she would give Samuel back for the Lord's purposes, so God's kingdom purposes would be fulfilled. The book of Samuel. Hannah's song talked about how God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. And we see this throughout the story. They're high on their horses, and then they fall. When they're too proud, they're humbled, and the humble are exalted. Okay? That despite human evil, despite the evil of Saul and David, God is still at work fulfilling his purposes. And that God will raise up a messianic king, the future king, that would bless all the nations. This is the book of Samuel, a very important book, probably overlooked too often. When you hear, where do I find the, book, the story of King David? Would you think of looking in the book of Samuel? Probably not. <laughs> you just think, oh, that's Samuel's story, right? But the book of Samuel is so important. It points us into the New Testament, and it shows how God had, had prophesied these things, how God had uh, shared this good news, and the promises are there, friends. I don't know what you're dealing with in life today. I don't know if you're freaking out, how you're dealing, how you're coping, how your relationship with God is. Maybe you want to know God more, but you're not sure if you could trust him. I hope that you are encouraged by the story of King David and young David. I hope that you are encouraged because no matter what circumstances he found himself in, wow, he could trust God. He trusted in God's timing. He didn't try to take matters into his own hands. He allowed God to get the revenge that God wants, you know. He didn't take matters into his own hands like King Saul did. He lived an honorable life recognizing what God appoints, what God anoints, what God's will and his purpose is. So that prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Indeed, we could all live like David and be people after God's own heart, trusting in his timing, trusting in his will, because his purposes will always be done.